Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. All right, Steve Sparks is one of my all-time favorite people in the game of baseball, even though I only get to see him uh, maybe 10 to 15 times a year. If I'm lucky, 19 times a year. The uh, One of the broadcasters for the Houston Astros and, and former major leaguer, and I'm, uh, I'm excited to have an added chance. This is going to make up, Sparky, for one of the times I'm not going to be able to see you because of what Wait will likely second. be an abbreviated schedule. Wait a second. Is this tender? <laughs> or is this an interview? What are we doing here? I think it's actually... I, thank you, Jared. That was very nice of you. I, I appreciate that. Did you say that for Mark Langston, too? No, I don't. I the, Only you. Only you. And, and, and your partner, Robert Ford. <laughs> I appreciate uh, it, man. Hey, Good to see you guys. Uh, your broadcast team, as Ranger fans know, is a top-notch. It's, it's elite, and uh, we always enjoy seeing you guys, too. So... I'm I'm thankful, Sparky, that we will be able to see you specifically. You before any of this uh, coronavirus stuff happened, you had a, a pretty significant life experience. I got a text. I, gosh, I forget. It must have been from mm. your partner Robert Ford uh, that you had. Uh, I, I guess a, a, a heart attack kind of out of nowhere. You're a young guy uh, from from my vantage point in, in good shape. Uh, <laughs> But I imagine that was a, a pretty unique experience. So first of all, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And, and what was that whole experience like for you? Well, if young and immature mean the same thing, I am very young. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thank you very much for asking. Uh, I'm doing great right now. It was December 11th and um, asymptomatic. I mean, it was just kind of out of nowhere, just on a 10-minute drive back from working out. Uh, by the time I pulled into my dry- driveway, I had a few symptoms of something that my wife, who had, who had a nursing background, recognized. And, and one was a little coolness in the middle of my chest. I thought it was from the cold air. I had some achiness in my left shoulder halfway home. And then by the time I, I pulled up in my driveway, I, I had nausea. So uh, she got me to the hospital. She was very insistent. And literally, Jared, um, within a minute, I, I had a massive heart attack and, and died three times. They brought me back to life. And uh, it was 99% blockage in that Widowmaker artery. And uh, it was family history. It wasn't anything to do with blood pressure or, or cholesterol or anything that uh, I even felt uh, as far as shortness of breath or anything of that nature. It was just family history that I didn't know the extent of. So. That's kind of my story to kind of get it out there is just to push people to uh, make sure that they continue to get tested. And for more than anything, uh, one really simple test that I've learned is is to figure out how much calcium uh, you have in your bloodstream. It's called a a calcium score. You can get it for about 100 bucks and uh, get some peace of mind by knowing you've got a zero calcium score. And you know that uh, you're probably uh, free and clear for another year or two. You can eat whatever you want. One of the things that you know, I think stands out. You mentioned you say immaturity. I, you know, I just think of you as is a, a fun-loving person who you know you never take yourself too seriously. Uh, and I guess you know you hear people who go through what you went through and they 
they'll say those sorts of things like, oh, you know, I, I've learned to just not take life too seriously and enjoy mm-hmm. every day. But you you already seem to do that. So what's the next level <laughs> for you? How, I mean, like, what's your response to this? You know, the, the next level for me is, you know, and even as a baseball player, I was very – I had a very good work ethic and I was very strict and diligent. And that came from just my upbringing. My dad was that way, my older brother. Uh, so I got my work ethic from them. And for me, it's just being very strict with my, with my diet. And, and I'll just say this to the, the, the lady that did my echocardiogram uh, a couple of weeks before I left for spring training just said, Hey, if I could tell you one thing to eliminate, it, it would be red meat. She says that it causes inflammation everywhere in your body. And uh, if you did that, uh, life would be a lot easier. So that was that was uh, all I needed to hear. So I, I, I've I've gotten pretty strict with my my diet. I don't really miss a a whole lot of anything. You know, I'm just uh, eating well, making decent choices. And then uh, the other thing was is six days of cardio. Now, man, I'm just uh, I'm doing 45 minutes six days a week of something, whether it's a, a pretty brisk briskly paced walk or I've got an elliptical at my house or, or finding some way to, to get out there and do something and sweat a little bit. What do you do when you're on the elliptical? Because I, I think it's, for me, this is a blessing and a curse. I will I, I can do a ton of cardio so long as I've got emails to send, texts mm. to send, something to, to watch. I can't just get on there. Like, even if it's one of those TVs that are – uh, a part of the uh, a part yeah. of the machine, or it's like off in the distance at a gym. Like I struggle with that. I've got to have like I got to feel like I'm being productive beyond just the production of of doing cardio. What do you are you able to just go and do it without any distraction, or do you have to have some sort of distraction? No, I, I really I do. I get super bored. And one of the things when I was in cardio rehab, and, and, and basically. I was the youngest by 25, 30 years of the people that were in my rehab uh, at the hospital when I was rehabbing before I went to spring training, trying to get my heart stronger where I didn't need a defibrillator. And uh, I got it there. But, uh, you know, there was one guy, his name was Clem, and he wore jeans and suspenders, and he was doing his cardio (laughs) in there. You know, it's just, you're just, I'm not, I'm not degrading anybody or anything. I'm just shaking my head and said, man, how did I get to this point so quickly? <laughs> and I'll say this is, is I got really sick of not only working out, but running, uh, as a pitcher in, in a major leaguer and a minor leaguer for 19 years that, uh, it just made me ill thinking about doing that. So that's one area, what you bring up that, that I struggle with is boredom. It just really bores me, uh, unless I have a distraction. So now it's, you know, to listen to XM radio as I walk or else it's uh, watching uh, a couple of programs on television, making sure I can kind of time it up with something that will distract me, whether it's the evening news or whatever it is that uh, I feel I can take me away. As far as how hard I'm going and everything, I think that the rule of thumb for for, uh, the stage I'm in in my life is to to get up enough of a heart rate to where you can still have a conversation yet you're still breathing pretty hard and working up a little sweat. Kind of Steve Sparks, uh, broadcaster for the Astros. Now, Sparky, I got to ask you this. Uh, The Astros have been in the news for, unfortunately, the wrong reasons uh, after a a few years of of really being in the news for all the right reasons, a a young, incredibly fun, talented team. But with this sign-stealing stuff, as a broadcaster, you're often – on the front lines, representing the mm-hmm. team, 
uh, you know, whether it's at, at events or just calling every single one of these games, you're also not the one in the dugout doing these things. You're a part of the organization. I know that you're proud to be a part of that organization. Uh, how, how do you handle that? I'm sure you and Robert, your your radio partner, uh, have had conversations. But but what? I, I don't know. I mean, if someone asked me like, how would you handle that if if this were the Rangers? And and I really don't know. I I, I yeah. candidly feel bad for for you guys and 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 Todd Callis and Jeff Blum and Julia Morales because I know there's going to be a lot of vitriol directed towards you guys yeah, unnecessarily. Exactly. But how do you go about? still having fun and being excited for this this really talented and exciting team while also being sensitive to everything that's kind of taken place? Well, just like you guys and just like Rangers fans that watch these teams on an everyday basis, you become invested. And not just fans. I mean, you're just invested because I got to know so many of these players' parents and the backstories. And, you know, once you get to know these people, these people on a, on a personal level, uh, you start to root for them almost not like they're your kids, but just some, something that's just so familiar that it, and for the Astros, the, the, the way they played in our eyes, it may not have seemed that way for, you know, their opponents, but it just seemed like they played with such joy and they really cared about each other and all that. So that was really fun to root for, for us because it seemed so fun and it just seemed so kid-like that uh, it was fun to be on board for that. So, so the thing when you look back at it, and one of the things that you mentioned, Jared, and I think everybody recognizes, is that that Astros bunch for the last few years um, not only uh, won, but they, they are incredibly talented. And we recognize that, and that's why we're disappointed that we can't look back on those years the same way that we would have liked to and, and held on to those mementos and those memories and look at, look at all these things without thinking, man, I wonder if so-and-so really did do this without the, the you know, nobody ever knows, uh, you know, who was aided in, in what realm and, and how much that, that played a part in them winning. So I, I think the underlying uh, tenet for, for everybody involved on the Astros end was that they probably didn't need to do it. And that's, you know, they may not have won the World Series in 2017, but uh, they may have won it also. So that's, that's the thing that's disappointing more than anything. I think the players, almost a man would probably tell you just about the same thing too, is, man, I, I don't know why we did it. We just got caught up in something. Uh, it snowballed. Nobody really uh, felt like standing up and saying something because when you're winning and everybody's feeling good about winning, you don't want to be the one person that's not on board. And I remember being in Major League Clubhouses 20 years ago, and I never did a steroid in my life, but I remember uh, one of my teammates, and he's a former Ranger, Danny Patterson, he and I were having dinner in our clubhouse one time, and and we were trying to count up how many of our teammates uh, that we knew for sure did steroids, and it was over half of them. And I remember pitching sometimes and, and somebody hitting a ball over straightaway center field that I knew didn't have any business not just because he hit a home run off of me. He had no business of hitting one as far as he did. But I felt like so many guys were aided by steroids. I felt like things were unfair. And I would imagine that's the way league-wide most people feel about the Astros. It just wasn't fair, and that's, that's not right. And I don't, I don't blame the, the anger and the hate or anything like that. But for us as broadcasters, uh, it's, it's 
I've been jotting down a lot of notes during the in, uh, the off season of things I want to touch on you because if you ignore it, you're going to sound like an idiot on the radio. If something happens, somebody say, God forbid, gets hit by a pitch and a brawl happens, and you didn't you didn't preface anything by by talking about the obvious. It, you, you sound like you're trying to skirt the issue. So uh, we hear booze a lot. We heard it a lot in spring training. So you mention it. And you talk about whether or not you feel. Uh, by watching, observing if Springer overswings, if that's affecting uh, his mindset and he's trying to do things that he's not uh, usually doing when he's at his best, things like that. You know, as an analyst, you're trying to try, try to get inside of the players' heads and what they would feel like. But they're going to have to live with it the rest of their lives. And uh, I feel bad for, for a lot of people. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, there's consequences for things like that. All right, uh, you, you touched on your playing career. I want to get into that in a second. H- how did you get into broadcasting, though? How did the transition from player to broadcaster come about? And 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 also, I guess an added part of that is you are on the radio side, and while there are several players who are broadcasters, I think you know, I think of you, I think of Jeff Brantley, former players who actually have play-by-play responsibilities as well. So, mm. what was the transition like in general? to being a broadcaster, and then specifically to actually having play-by-play responsibilities beyond just the analyst responsibilities that I'm sure came a little more naturally to you. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's much more natural, that's that's for sure. So the, the Cliff Notes version is at a charity golf tournament, maybe a year after I was done playing, um, Bill Brown, who's a longtime phenomenal person and broadcaster for the Astros on television, uh, he was the play-by-play man for over 30 years for the Astros and also was play-by-play before that with the Big Red Machine in Cincinnati. So he, he had a phenomenal career. But uh, his wife and my wife were sitting together at a table at a charity golf tournament, and she had just mentioned that, that the Astros had happened to be looking for uh, maybe a player with experience uh, in the Houston area to, to do some of the uh, analytical work on the pre- and post-game shows of their television broadcast because they were having a hard time finding people in the area. And not being an, uh, uh, a player that lived in the area that actually played for the Astros, I, I thought it was kind of a long shot. But, it, you know, my wife and I had talked about it and, and decided, you know what, we'll, we'll call this producer. Uh, I called him. His name is Murphy Brown. We had lunch, and the next day I was on TV, and for seven years I did pre- and post-game stuff on TV for the Astros. So I – at the end of that tenure, it wasn't. I didn't feel like it was going to be the end, but things uh, worked out well in that realm because on the on the uh, pre and post game shows, you don't have to travel with the team. When they're on the road, you get a chance to uh, just go to a studio and you do the your analysis uh, and never have to go out of, out of town, which was great because of my, the ages of my kids. Well, after the 2012 season, Milo Hamilton, the Hall of Fame radio broadcaster for the Astros, had announced his retirement, and they asked me to interview for that job. And it, was, it wasn't perfect timing as far as my kids and family goes, but uh, it was close to it. So I did interview, and I did uh, get the job to be the, the uh, analyst uh, alongside Robert Ford, uh, who was going to be the new play-by-play man. And the funny thing about that was is they, they hired us very late. Not only did they hire us late, which was two weeks before the season, two days before I left for spring training that first year, they said, by the way, uh, we forgot to tell you, um, we want you to do play-by-play as well for two or three innings. 
So, I mean, that was, that was a shock to my system. So, uh, 2013, if you remember, the Astros were, were in the pit of despair and, uh, not many people were listening or watching those games at that point, luckily for me, because uh, I was falling on my face a lot and still do, but not to the same extent, but, uh, play by play, uh, uh, for guys like, you know, Hixie and Eric Nadell and my, my partner, Robert Ford. And I've heard you, Jared, you know, I have a, a real respect for the way you guys can, uh, weave, uh, stories and, and it, there's a real art and a science to being able to, to put together a really good broadcast, particularly on, on the radio to describe things for people to be able to feel like they're at the ballpark. And it's a great challenge. Uh, I love doing that now. But uh, it wasn't easy, and it's still not easy. And you over-prepare like crazy just because you don't want to run out of stuff and end up using about 5 or 10% of the stuff you've got ready. But you've you got to be ready for 17 or 18 innings at a moment's notice. What were some of the things you did to get better? Did you listen to other people? Did you go home and practice? I mean, like, what were some of the yeah. different things you did so that you could improve? You know what? Um, I've got some tips. You know, I would go talk to Eric and Matt, you know, guys in our division. Uh, I, re- I remember having an exhibition game before our, our first game uh, at Minute Maid Park, and we were playing the Cubs in the exhibition game. And I remember Lynn Casper telling me, hey, on the radio, don't forget this. He said, um, when you have conversations with, with coaches, use the things they tell you as your own opinions. Don't put their name to them. And I thought that was, that was ingenious. And the other thing was, was about the lag is, uh, the people in their car, they can hear the crack of the bat. So be on time with your play by play with the crack of the bat and then pause about a half a second, maybe even a second. That way you can let the play take place and describe it after you see it. So you're not, you know, tripping over your words, trying to, trying to get in a hurry to, to be right on time with everything because people can't see it. So uh, you can be much more precise if you wait just a little bit. But there was little nuggets like that. And then the other thing was in the, in the plane when we would travel, there would uh, invariably be games on, in, on the airplane, and I would not put on my, my uh, earphones on purpose, and I would watch games, and in my head I would do play-by-play as I watched those games nonstop during, during the season. So. Little things like that and, and a lot of nuggets and, and tips from, from guys like yourself and around the league that have uh, helped out. All right, now this all came after you spent about a decade as a major leaguer, and uh, you were a part of, a, a, a I guess, a, a small fraternity of folks who threw a knuckleball. Yeah. How did that all come about? You know what? I pitched, I, I think, five years in the minor leagues, and I was having trouble at the double-A level, and it was b- becoming more clear to the Milwaukee Brewers at the time that that was probably going to be the peak of, of my professional career. And I think, they, I think they liked me, and I think they liked my work ethic and my resolve. That they felt like I might be a good candidate to throw a knuckleball. So they came up to me toward the end of one season, and they said, hey, we'd like you to come to Instructional League and, and work on a knuckleball. And I'd never thrown one before. I didn't even start pitching until my junior year in college anyway. So uh, to throw a knuckleball, something that I'd never thrown before, was, was going to be very foreign. So they, they were going to give me a three-year plan. And it was 30% the first year, 50% the second year, and 70% the third year. And we we're going to kind of evaluate where we were after that. So 
I was buying myself three years of time, but I just didn't know what I was going to get into. So when I finally got better, the first two years, definitely, Jared, I got worse by, but because I never really committed to the pitch. So throwing at 30% and throwing at 50%, I got worse just because going back and forth between your other pitches, you just never really got a feel. When I got better was, was toward the end of one season here in Houston, the Los Angeles Dodgers were going to play the Astros uh, at the Dome in September. And uh, my coach in the minor leagues had played with Tom Candiotti with the Cleveland Indians. So I got an end to be able to get a chance to, to talk to Candiotti for a moment. And I had six pages of questions. And we met down by the bullpen down the left field line. And I asked him these questions. He was very very generous uh, with his time. And after we were done with that probably 15-minute conversation, I wrote down all the answers uh, that he had told me. And that, that, that began my Bible. That, that became uh, what I used to, to try to get better. And I went to winter ball in Los Mochis, Mexico, maybe just a few weeks after that. And I committed to throw that pitch 100% of the time, 3-0 count, 3-2 count, bases or whatever it was, I was going to commit to that pitch. And I did, and that's when I got a lot better. And by then, I was knocking at the door uh, uh, to you know a nine-year major league career, uh, starting at the age of thirty. All right now, you're, I guess you're, and maybe you'd feel otherwise, but just looking at the numbers, and and I remember when you were playing, but your best season was two thousand one. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Won fourteen games with the Tigers. Uh, threw over two hundred and thirty innings. Had an ERA. Uh, in the mid threes, what what was it about that year that just clicked where everything sort of came together for you? Or what do you recall about that year? Um, I, I remember feeling it, the, the secret to sports, and this is when people talk about getting in a zone, is whether it's basketball, whether it's golf, whether it's baseball, the secret to sports or to get in a zone and to perform at your best is to not think about mechanics. And, you know, if you're shooting a jump shot and you're thinking about where your elbow is or anything like that, if you're doing anything other than just shooting it with your mind clear, knowing that it's going to go in, I mean, that's when you're at its best, you know, and it happens. That's the secret in every sport. And it's not to say that you don't work on mechanics. But there's a time and a place. And when you're competing at the major league level or at a very competitive level, you can't think about mechanics and be your best uh, competitively. So that just happened to be uh, at a point in my career where things kind of just came together health-wise and mechanically that uh, I really got locked in. And I didn't think about anything other than changing speeds. I remember Charlie Huff, a longtime Ranger great, telling me one time, I I talked to him on the telephone, and, I, and he said, hey, uh, my wife noticed something uh, when you were pitching. And this was probably in the late 90s when I was with the Angels. And he lived in Southern California. And his wife was watching. And he says, it looks like Steve's trying to throw downhill or down toward the catcher. And Charlie mentioned that to me. And I said, yeah, I am. I mean, that's what we've always done is throwing, you know, ha- trying to put the ball on a downhill plane. It's harder to hit. He said, not with the knuckleball. He said, with the knuckleball, you want to aim higher. That way you keep your palm behind the ball longer and it's easier to take the spin off. And just by that simple little suggestion, I uh, changed my what I was looking at from the catcher's glove to the top of his catcher's mask, the very top of it. And that way I was throwing it, you know, uh, and staying behind the ball at a, at a 
for a much longer period of time. I wasn't rolling over by, by trying to throw it downhill. And I took the spin off and the ball would seem to explode. And just from the gravity, it would take it down toward the strike zone. So it just happened to be kind of a, a few things that just kind of uh, worked itself into place in, in one particular year. I'm curious. So every, every team, and I guess it's changed now. I mean, staff, coaching staffs have grown, but you know, traditionally there's a pitching coach and then you probably have a, a couple other people on staff who have a true expertise in pitching, but uh-huh. Did were you essentially your own pitching coach? Because I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but if, if your pitching coach really didn't have experience with a knuckleball, was was there just a limit to what sort of guidance and advice they could provide, or was it just kind of more on the scouting report side? I, I, how did that work? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I would usually tell them, and I would tell even my catchers what, what I felt like was the best way to, to, to catch uh, the knuckleball, and that was to wait. You know, if you reach for that knuckleball and it has the last, sudden movement that's when you get the pass balls because you're reaching and stabbing for the baseball and for the coaches it was up to me to kind of educate them on uh what i did best in certain situations and uh that way he could coach me so i i remember dan more than was my pitching coach in detroit and uh he was one of the best i'd ever had and he knew what I looked like when I was at my best and he had a really keen eye and he was able to detect something a little bit off when uh, my control or or my inability to take the spin off the baseball uh, was evident. So he he could kind of get me back on track with one little thing. But I think the one thing you want to make sure to to avoid, and I think this is with normal pitchers too. Most guys will tell you the same thing is not to overcoach, especially at the major league level is, uh, you know, if you can get a coach, and I think Brent Strom with the Astros is one of the best I've ever seen at it. He knows what a guy looks like. And, and that guy, a Garrett Cole or a Justin Berlander, may throw a pitch three or four pitches later where he may have kicked his leg an inch and a half higher, and it, and it caused his, his throwing arm to trail by the time he got uh, his hand to the release point. He's very, it's like he's taking little little snapshots along the entire delivery where he can see things much slower than most people. And he can tell you one little thing and you can look at it maybe on video if you need to in between innings and lock yourself right back in. All right, Sparky. I, I, I guess I'm curious as well, the dying breed of the knuckleballer. And I, I don't know, maybe yeah. you would know how many people in professional baseball last year threw it more than just like, you know, once or twice. Uh, I mean, is that, the game's changed. Uh, is is that why knuckleballers really don't exist? Would you still advocate for guys who were like you, maybe stalling out in the minors to try and learn that pitch? Or has the game changed in a way where you understand why there aren't knuckleballers anymore? I guess what are your thoughts on the pitch that basically gave you a, a big league career? Yeah, well, I think... I think it goes in cycles, and the knuckleball's always kind of gone in cycles. The Washington Senators one year had four knuckleballers in their rotation. So, you know, people get enamored when, when R.A. Dickey won the Cy Young Award eight or nine years ago. They got enamored again. Um, so guys were, were coming out and throwing a little bit more. It, when you were just asking me that question, I remember at one point last year in the Oakland A's dugout before a game, after Bob Melvin had his little – uh, press conference with the with the media. He tossed me a baseball. He said, "You think you can throw your knuckleball with this?" And it was last year's baseball. And I tried to dig my fingernails in the ball, and I mean, it was like a cue ball. And 
The short answer is there is no way I could throw the knuckleball with the, with the Major League Baseball that they used last year. It's how hard and slick it was. So that would become a, a huge problem if you had a major commitment to, say, a pitcher, and the balls remain like that. I mean, if they if they don't soften a little bit in, in the next year or two, then we may not see a knuckleball pitcher at the major league level for a while. So it's interesting that you say that. I don't think the balls are going to stay as hard and slick as they were last year, uh, but I'm anxious to see uh, where they get to. But I think that the, a knuckleball pitcher can provide a, a very – Nice resource for a team uh, that gives team or the opposing teams a different look. Uh, of course, eating up innings is very imperative when you have young pitchers or pitchers coming off surgeries and things like that. If you've got that one stalwart who can go out there and give you a 200 innings, still at this this day and age, I mean they're they're worth their weight in gold. You, that that 2001 season, you threw eight complete games. When you yeah. would throw a complete game the next day, what sort of soreness would you experience? You know, when your mechanics are good, and I'll, and I'll bring a story into this too, because Garrett Cole got caught on to something last year where he was not nearly as sore as he had ever been, and he, and he threw more innings, in, and he was throwing as hard as ever. But for me, when my mechanics were good, uh, I was less sore when my mechanics were bad and I was fighting different body parts to get the ball forward, then I was more sore. So it, it's just like anything else, not to the same degree. And also, if I was sore going into a start that I wasn't going to rely on velocity, so it wasn't going to factor in really to my effectiveness. And for Garrett Cole, he realized last year that he was able to keep his body rotating after he released the ball by letting his glove hand continue to go rather than just keep it close to your body and stopping things all in, in, in some kind of a sudden jerk uh, to, to stay square with, with home plate and be a great fielder like everybody's taught us forever. But to let that glove go, kind of fall off toward first base, but you allow your upper body to continue to rotate. And he said it took a ton of pressure off the back of his shoulder, and he also increased the RPMs on every one of his pitches. That guy was uh, was pretty fun to watch last year, huh? That was that was one for the ages. I felt. I mean, it, but, you know, I don't feel like I'm being biased in what we were watching. You know, the last five months, what he did. He got off to a slow start the first month, and I think the last bad game was was in Arlington. But after that, man, he, man, I don't think I've ever seen somebody put together so many impressive performances night after night after night. That that was a lot of fun, and we knew uh, it was probably just almost zero chance to, to get him back. But, uh, so we were trying to enjoy every single one of them. Well, and it's Steve's fault that he's not a Ranger. Cause I wrote a Pulitzer <laughs> prize worthy, uh, card to Garrett professing my love and why he should come to the Rangers. And Steve never gave it to him. And so yeah, I gave it to Susan Walden. She gave it to him. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he's the Yankee. All right. Last question for you, Sparky. Uh, what is something that you would like to learn or something that you would like to try? I think for me, uh, it would just be the front man of, of a hairband. You know, just work the <laughs> microphone like Axl Rose and Guns N' Roses. Just, just be up front and, and have probably about 30 uh, scarves around my neck and, and let my hair grow out to uh, the, the very nape of my back and just feel the energy of the crowd. 
that's that's what I want to do. Well, you and Eric now have something that you can talk about uh, when you know I've seen pictures where he looked like he may have done that. <laughs> Next, uh, Eric's birthday benefit concert is going to feature the Steve Sparks Band, the Knuckleballs. There you go. Steve, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. Looking forward to seeing you. You too, buddy. Take care.